Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Great Scott Podcast. Today, I am joined by TV writer, director, producer, uh, Mr. Sandy Freeze, better known as Professor Sandy Freeze. How's it going, Sandy? I am doing great. I've had caffeine to a to an amount that makes me feel wonderful. Uh, just <laughs> just for this particular podcast, there are other ways I can feel great. Meditating, uh, caffeine, uh, just a nice day, but. I've done all of those just for this podcast. That's actually interesting that you mentioned that um, meditation seems to be a uh, a big thing that I've seen a lot of people. I mean, especially with the the bigger stars, get into. Yeah, you know, I I, I always try to do things that can make my life better. I, I've meditated, uh, which I find to be phenomenal. Uh, just a really really helpful kind of thing in terms of life in general. When I when I've got to go to a really important meeting or I've got something important to write, I'll meditate for a half hour before it. And my brain is just much better than without meditating. Uh, so that's, that's great stuff. Uh, I've even done a flotation tank once, which was very cool. Uh, so I'm always, you know, looking at ways to make my life as good as possible. Uh, so yeah, I, I got ready for this podcast, and I hope I do a good job for you. Oh, no worries. I'm sure you'll you'll do just fine. Um, so w- let me ask you. I mean, one more question about the meditation thing. Um, when you are meditating, what are you uh, meditating on or or about? Uh, okay, very good question. There's a lot of different ways to meditate. Uh, I'll give you the simplest way, and there have been studies at Harvard and other very respectable places that show uh, that meditation is great physiologically and psychologically. Now, if anyone in your audience here is squeaking in the background, that's my very adorable dog, Toby. Oh. <laughs> He'll probably cool it in a minute or so. So that's, that's where it's coming from. But anyway, the, how, how do you meditate? The simplest, most effective way to meditate uh, that I know of, and again, there are many, many different types of meditation, very simple. Sit in a room, preferably dark, quiet, in a comfortable position, and just breathe in and out through your nose and concentrate on the breath or the air going in and out of your nose. Focus on that as much as possible. If your mind wanders, bring it back to your in and out uh, air going through your nose. And that is the simplest way to do it. You can do it for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you need to, as often as you need to, or as little as you need to. I found it to be fantastic. Uh, Stuff I write when I meditate regularly, much better. Meetings I have when I meditate, much better. Uh, Many studies have been done physiologically, psychologically about the benefits of meditating. Uh, so I, I recommend it very highly. And it also slows the heart rate down, I think, from what I have read as well. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I'm not an MD, but I, I have read a book by a Harvard MD, uh, you know, very believable guy who lists a bunch of physiological improvements that happen. And I know for certain I write better and think better, and I'm more focused when I meditate. I, I, I know that for certain. So to get into uh, your your amazing career, uh, you are the author of the uh, book Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. 
And uh, like I was telling you a little bit before, uh, I had been reading that, and uh, thank you for saying it to me. Uh, first off, it was a very fascinating read, and uh, it was a very easy read. Um, and any fans of show business and, and people who want to get into show business themselves or any Star Trek fans, I think would just love this book. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the book Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You. It's on Amazon if you're interested. It's really this is how I think of the book. Uh, I've, you know, I've had some wonderful things happen in my life. I've had some terrible things happen in my life. And, you know, we'll, if you want, we'll get into some of the terrible things in a little while, but some of the wonderful things are, I, I've been lucky enough to work with Stan Lee, who was the creator or co-creator of Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, X-Men, uh, what else? Thor, on and on and on, the Hulk, you know, he, he's the founding father of the Marvel comic book heroes. So I've worked with him. I, I wrote for the animated Spider-Man. Uh, I worked with Gene Roddenberry, who's the creator of Star Trek. I worked on several Star Trek projects, Star Trek Next Generation, blah, blah, blah. Worked with Joseph Barbera, the founder of Hanna-Barbera. Uh, worked with Sam Simon, the creator of The Simpsons. You know, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is I've worked with some very, very cool, successful people, and what I did in the book uh, is take what I learned from each of them in terms of how to have the best life possible and write about what Joe Barbera does that I learned from that other people can use in their lives what I learned from the creator of The Simpsons, co-creator of The Simpsons that I can learn from and other people can use in their lives. So it's about the entertainment business because that's where I've, I've spent a lot of my years. But it's really about how can I and how can readers learn from these amazing, phenomenal, creative people. You know, again, Stan Lee, the creator, also the creator of Star Trek, the creator of The Simpsons. These are heavy-duty people. What can I learn from their lives, and what can I transmit to the readers to give them the best life possible? So if there was ever a list of people who were probably the best in their professions, I think you hit probably the four, if there was like ever a Mount Rushmore of them, I think you hit probably the four best. Yeah, you know, which is amazing to me. I, you know, I look back at some of the stuff I've done, and I just say to myself, holy mackerel, thank you, correct deity, because I, I believe in the deity. Uh, and I say correct deity because I'm not totally sure which is the right one, though I have my ideas. And I thank you for all the great stuff you've given me. Uh, I don't know why you did this to me or that to me, because there have been some not-so-great stuff that's happened to me, some bad stuff even. Uh, but overall, I've been very, very, very lucky in my life, in my career, and how I did it, how these other stellar people from the entertainment business did it, that's what the book is about. Now, there's also something else I wanted to, to touch on, and, and I do want to come back to Sam, Gene, Joseph, and, and Stan there, since you go into to great uh, detail about them, but um, you're, you're, you are related to someone who I think that a lot of Hollywood people are quite familiar with and have studied under. Oh, wow. And I Lee, didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Lee, Lee Strasberg, yeah. Yeah, Lee, Lee, Lee Strasberg, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm saying, how did you know that? I don't usually talk about it. And they go, oh, yeah, I wrote about that in the book. Yeah, uh, Lee Strasberg uh, was one of the most well-known acting teachers in the history of acting. He, uh, some of his students, if my memory's correct, Marilyn Monroe was a very, very big, famous, well-known acting student of his. Uh, who else? I believe Dustin Hoffman. Al Pacino. Yeah, Al Pacino. Uh, I think even I think I, Brad Garrett studied in, at the school. Yeah, also Marlon Brando. You know, some of the big, big, big names were his acting students, and he was an amazing guy. I, I really enjoy talking to him, hanging out with him. The thing that was most amazing to me about him was he had three homes. One was in uh, New York City, right right on Central Park, Park uh, Central Park West, near about 70. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is because his wife still has it, but it's it's on Central Park West. Big apartment, big apartment, really big apartment, and. Every darn wall is lined with books. He has bookshelves all over the place. Wow. Then, yeah. then, he, has, then he had, you know, top to bottom. Uh, then he has another house. Well, he's passed away. He had another house. His wife still has it. That is in Bel Air. Big, big, beautiful house. All the walls lined with bookshelves, top top to bottom, you know, thousands of books. Then he's got another house in Fire Island. Uh, same thing, books all over, thousands of books. And, you know, it's very impressive. And I once said to him, you know, Lee, this is very impressive stuff here. Have you actually read all these books? And he said, yes, I have. And, you know, the guy is a wealth of knowledge, an amazing, amazing guy. Uh and he did read all the books because I quizzed him on some of them. So he absolutely read all the books. He, he was also he, – he's done acting too. He was in the second – I believe it was the second Godfather. Uh, so he's he's quite a guy. You know, as I look back at the people I've been lucky enough to spend time with, it's it's amazing to me. You know, I, I think whatever deity people believe in, plans what we do and I can see a plan for what happened in my life and you know maybe I'm fooling myself but I think there has been a plan I think I've learned a lot because of the plan and I think I've just been incredibly lucky to have had the life I've had and hopefully there will be plenty more and uh, you had touched on Marilyn Monroe there for a little bit uh, you got to sleep in Marilyn Monroe's bed yes that's, that's that's kind of amazing. I got to sleep in Marilyn Monroe's bed. However, unfortunately, she was not in it. Uh, oh, Marilyn, but Marilyn Monroe was very, very close to Lee. Uh, it was almost, almost a daughter-father kind of relationship. You know, he was her acting teacher, but it was closer than that. You know, it was, as I said, daughter-father pretty much. Uh, there's even a book uh, by Lee's real daughter uh, where she mentions the relationship between her dad and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, so Lee 
had, again, the three homes. I've been in all of them. They're all phenomenal, beautiful places. And in one of the homes, I actually slept in the bed that she used to sleep in when she was there. And, you know, it was kind of weird because um, I was thinking, are there any vibes here, any ghosts or anything? There were not, but it was pretty cool. That yeah, that's that's every man's fantasy right there. I think that yeah. you looked out. Yeah, it would have been better <laughs> if she was there. However, right. the, next, the next best thing to that I got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you also mentioned in your book um, about Matt Groening and how the Simpsons came together. Yeah, that you guys yeah. had a meeting. Um, yeah, well, I'll so I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, well, Sam Simon is one of the co-creators of The Simpsons. Was he's passed away also? Uh, Sam was a co-creator of The Simpsons along with Matt and uh, one other person. Uh, Sam and I had also before The Simpsons, a little before The Simpsons, had co-created some TV shows together. Four of them which we went went around and pitched and never got sold. So for a little while, I was Sam's writing partner, Sam Simons. Uh, so Sam and two other people created The Simpsons. Uh, obviously, great, great hit. You know, the thing about Sam that I, I mentioned in the book that I learned from and readers can learn from, uh, this is all in the book, but I'll elaborate on it, you know, in the book, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, on Amazon, shameless plug, uh, Sam, <laughs> no has admi- Sam has admitted this in print, so I'm not revealing anything personal, uh, but he's, he's talked about it in print himself before he passed away, and I'll tell you what I learned from Sam and what other people can learn from my experience with Sam, regardless of what your career might be. I think anybody could learn from it. You know, Sam Simon, co-creator of The Simpsons, hugely successful guy. When he passed away, he donated about $100 million to uh, animal charities because he loved dogs. Co-creator of The Simpsons, made amazing amounts of money, very well-known in Hollywood. Uh, He, Sam... Simon wrote for other shows, and you know he was just a stellar, stellar talent, a very nice person, always very nice to me. The thing about Sam was, he said, and other people said about him, you know, that's one lucky guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he his first wife was a Playboy model, his second wife was an actress, so you know, he he lived the showbiz life. 100%. Now, the problem that Sam had, and it's a real problem, and again, this is stuff he admitted it to himself in print, he had terrible anger, a really, really bad anger when he was working on The Simpsons and at other times. You know, when I worked with him, when I, you know, I would hang out with him, we'd go to a movie or just shoot the breeze or he'd show me stuff he was working on. I was never a subject of his anger, but he talked about his anger when he was working on The Simpsons, and he just admitted that it was 
out of control and terrible and horrible. And I read a biography of George, an autobiography actually that George Carlin wrote. And George Carlin, the stand-up comedian, also worked with Sam. And there was about a half a page of Carlin talking about Sam Simon's anger. So the guy was an angry guy. I don't know where his anger came from, but he had a big anger problem. That's yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, what, yeah. Yeah. Where, where did it come from? Well, this is this is the sad part about Sam's life. He had a phenomenal life in terms of many things, but at a relatively young age, he developed cancer, and the cancer slowly ate away at him and it was a horrific consuming of his life and his body and it was just horrific uh, you know so what do we learn from that I'm not an MD so I don't know this for certain but I do know that stress has a big influence on many many illnesses my guess is that when you're angry a lot, when you're stressed a lot, I believe that could certainly be a cause of cancer. That's my belief as a non-MD. Uh, did it have anything to do with Sam's getting cancer and it devouring his body slowly and horribly? You know, he, he died a horrible way. There's no good way to die, but yeah. you know, it was gradual and it was miserable. And I, I, remember seeing a photo of him in a hospital room, you know, where his head is just down and he, he looks horribly distraught. And, you know, the lesson to me is there's nothing to be angry about. Nothing's worth being angry about. It's, and this is, this is known by everybody. However, it's not internalized by everybody. I think most people know it but don't really internalize it. You know, when you're angry, it causes chemical reactions. It causes bad things to happen. It's no good for the person holding the anger. It's no good for the people receiving the anger. Yeah. It's just counterproductive in every kind of way. And Sam, I think, was an example of that. Uh the other thing is the guy had an amazing life. I don't know what caused his anger. Uh, you know, from what I know, he was raised in Beverly Hills. His parents lived in Beverly Hills. His parents were well off. He was very well off. Uh, I know he loved dogs. I love dogs. I've got a dog. You heard him squeaking maybe a little before. <laughs> but, you know, anger, anger is... I believe the killer, you know, it's counterproductive strategically, morally, it does nothing for anybody. Uh, and it was really sad to see a guy who everybody said, Oh, that's Sam. He's a lucky guy. He's also very talented, obviously, but I believe he was consumed and eaten away by anger. And, and to me, that's a horrific thing. Now, am I Mr. Perfect? No, not by any means. I've gotten angry at people. I've yelled at people. But I think I've got a better handle on it than Sam did. And the big lesson I learned from him was you got to internalize and understand that anger is no good for you. And 
not only is it no good for you, but it could it could lead to all kinds of negative repercussions for you in terms of illness, for the people who receive the anger. Uh, it's it, it's it's you know there there's nothing in the world worth screaming and yelling at somebody about. Absolutely, uh, I agree. You know, so that's what I learned from Sam. And in the book I wrote, uh, it goes into more detail as to what happened to him and what he said about his own anger. You know, I quote him a couple of times in the book, if my memory's correct. It's just sad because he had every darn thing going for him. He was good looking, a lot better looking than me. He was taller than me, better writer than me. (laughs) Uh, But this beautiful house, loads of money, but I, my guess and my belief is the anger did him in. And you, whoever out there has anger issues, you got to work on it. You got to deal with it. Uh, I've found that meditation is very helpful for that kind of thing. Uh, you know, there are time, when, it, when I'm done meditating, uh, I just have a very different frame of mind that it's almost impossible to get angry with. So, you know, uh, previously, 10, 15 years ago, I would get angry. These days, I think I've improved that quite a lot, and it doesn't doesn't bother me too much. So, um, <clears throat> I also wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about. Uh, I don't think that uh, this is my opinion. I don't think that uh, Joseph Barbera probably gets as much credit as he deserves because he contributed a lot to the to the cartoon world. Uh, I, I grew up on Scooby-Doo and um, just a uh, just a very, very much a, a, a genius in creating cartoons and, and television shows. Yeah, he was, Mr. Barbera was phenomenal. And I, I spent a lot of time working with him, uh, worked with him on a lot of shows. I always call him Mr. Barbera out of respect. Absolutely. Uh, Sometimes I called him JB, but I would never call him by his first name because I have such huge respect for him as as person as a creative person. Uh, that guy was amazing. He's just brilliant, 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 brilliant guy. You know, you'd walk into his office. I can't remember the exact number, but you'd see. I think about. Wait, I could be off on the number about five or six Emmy Award statues, Academy Award statues. I remember the first time I walked in his office, he said, hey, Sam, do you want to hold one of these Academy Award statues? And yeah, sure, Mr. Barbera. You know, his office is amazing. It's, it was one of the coolest offices I've ever seen. Actually, if somebody said to me, hey, you want to have a duplicate of the Oval Office or Mr. Barbera's office? I'll go for Mr. Barbera's office. It was much cooler. It was a big, big, beautiful office with Emmy Awards, Academy Awards, you know, the statues, uh, characters, all the characters he co-created all over the place in terms of plush animals, you know, the Flintstones, Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, uh, the Jetsons. Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, on and on. You know, these toys all over the place. Beautiful furniture, plush, comfortable. You would, uh, I, I would sit down on a couch, and Mr. Barbera would face me, and right over his shoulder was a picture of Mr. Barbera and the Pope. 
Well, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Uh, you know, there are pictures of him with famous people all over the office, but it was just a very comfortable, very cool office. I really loved working with him. He was a genius. You know, he was an absolute genius. He he knew marketing very well. He was creative. He was a great artist. Uh, when I you know I worked with him on several different shows, and sometimes if we you know I we I'd be discussing a gag with him, a joke. How do we do it? And I'd say, Hey, Mr. Barbera, how do you, how how would the characters do that joke? And he gets up and he acts out all the characters. You know, Tom, yeah, Tom does this, and then Jerry does that, blah, 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 blah. And then, and then the cat does this, blah, 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 blah. And I'm looking at him a little confused. And he goes, Sandy, you don't understand what I'm telling you, do you? you know, no, sir, Mr. Barbera, I don't. Uh, could you do it again for me? He goes, blah, 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 blah. And occasionally, you know, he, he acted out the, the, all the characters. He did voices of the characters. Tom and Jerry didn't have voices, but for the other characters he did. So he would act out the characters. He would do their voices. He would do their body, you know, posture. And I would take notes and then turn it into a script. And he would, the guy was amazing. He was always fascinating. Never, ever anything other than fascinated by Mr. Barbera. Uh, he also occasionally I go, um, Mr. Barbera, how does how does that gag go? Could you could you maybe draw that out, please? And he would, yeah, sure, Sandy, I could do that. So he takes a pencil and on my note page would draw. Tom is doing this, Jerry's doing that. You know, Jerry has this thing that's like a vice from the medieval days, and he clanks it, blah blah blah, and he draws out the whole gag on a sheet of paper. And I'm going, oof, this is beautiful. So I saved everything that he draw he drew, and he was a great artist. He was a great actor in terms of doing the characters. He was great at voices, always fascinating. Uh, I went to lunch with him a bunch of times, and he was always great to go to lunch with. The thing that I learned from him is enjoy your life. You know, he had the coolest cars. He was always in a great mood. Always the kind of guy you could joke around with. When I had story meetings with him, story meetings where you pitch story ideas or you discuss gags in the script, when I had story meetings with him, I would literally be laughing so hard that people outside of his office and way down the hall could hear him and me laughing. <laughs> and I remember during those meetings, I'm laughing at him, he's laughing at stuff I say, I'm laughing at his jokes. I remember saying to myself, wow, I'm sitting here with Mr. Joseph Barbera laughing a lot and getting paid for it. So amazing stuff. So what I learned from him that I think readers can learn from, anybody can learn from is enjoy your life. Uh, it ends for everybody. If you don't have fun, if you don't enjoy it, when you're 98 years old and ready to croak, you're going to look back and go, Oh damn! I forgot to enjoy my life. Yeah, I was angry and I was bitter and I was this and I fought with this one. I forgot that. I did lots of stuff, but I forgot enjoying things. That Mr. Barbera, he loved being alive. He absolutely loved everything that he did. And uh, another suggestion I give to people in terms of career: figure out a career you you enjoy and go after it. Uh, you know, don't be something that you're going to begrudge because. It's just not the way to go.
Is that uh, one thing that you uh, always tell your students as uh, the semester is about to end? Yeah, you know, one of the big things I tell students is if you have tenacity and you have talent, uh, the odds are very good you're going to do very well. You know, if you look at actors, you know, people go, yeah, well, Professor Freeze, isn't there a lot of competition to be in the entertainment business? Isn't it very competitive? Maybe I shouldn't do something that competitive. I'll always say to people, well, no, there's not a lot of competition. That's a fallacy, and I'll prove it to you. Uh, Tom Hanks gets about $20 million a movie. The reason for that is because there's very few people with the talent of Tom Hanks. If you got his talent, doors are open for you, and you'll get paid $20 million. If there were hundreds of Tom Hanks's, he'd be getting 12000 bucks a movie. Mm-hmm. Writers for TV shows and movies make a lot of money because there's very little competition for good writers. Uh, you know, a good writer on a movie, on a TV show, can make a load of money because supply and demand, there's not a lot of competition for good writers. Now, if you're a lousy writer, there's plenty of competition for lousy writers. <laughs> if you're a lousy anything, there's plenty of competition for lousy anything. You know, there's plenty of competition for lousy plumbers. There's plenty of competition for lousy surgeons. There's plenty of competition for lousy uh, everybody. Now, is there competition for really good writers and actors and directors? No, it's a fallacy. I think those lousy people go on to to become politicians. You know, that's absolutely correct. Now, I will say only 90% of them are horrible. And the reason I say that is so I don't get any politicians mad on me. Oh, well, yeah. The other 10% are good. Mark Twain had a line about politicians. This is a Mark Twain line. Love Mark Twain as writer. Politicians and diapers should be changed often and for the same reason. <laughs> That's that's good. And Mark Twain, one of the best writers in the history of writing, one of the smartest guys in the history of writing, politicians and diapers should be changed often and for the same reason. Absolutely correct, Mr. Twain. Boy, oh boy, is that true. You know, if, you, if you have no real talent and you can't really do much, 90% of the politicians fall into that category. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I do want to ask you one more thing about Mr. Barbera. Um, did he ever uh, work with Mel, Mel Blanc at all? Uh, let me think. I'm not really sure. I know he worked with Frizz Freeling. Uh, Mr. Freeling had an office at Hanna-Barbera. I know that. Uh, Frizz Freeling was the guy who directed Pink Panther. Uh, I also know he hired Tex Avery. Tex Avery was uh, the guy who did at MGM, Droopy, and other great animation cartoons. I actually, when Tex Tex Avery was a phenomenal director, Uh, he did Droopy, he did other non-star cartoons at MGM, but he was a brilliant director. Uh, I remember meeting at Hanna-Barbera that I had with Tex Avery, uh, and I was just really jazzed to be pitching to Tex Avery because he was one of my heroes. I also had a meeting, I remember, with Frizz Freeling at Hanna-Barbera, uh, and he, you know, we talked about the Pink Panther and other stuff. 
I don't think, let me think. I don't think I sold the story I did of Chris Freeling or Tex Avery, but you know, those are the giants in the business. Right. Along with Mr. Barbera. So just sitting in a room with them, you know, was amazing. So uh, I do want to try and hit everybody here, uh, the the main four here. Um, Stan Lee, uh, you had uh, talked about an idea that maybe uh, you, you talk about in your in your book that you're kind of kicking yourself over a couple couple things. Uh huh. Yeah, there were a few things that I kicked myself over. Uh, and and again, I get into more detail about it in the book, but. You know, Stanley was a friend, and I also worked with him uh, on the animated Spider-Man show. And, uh, you know, I, again, I get into more detail in the book, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, at Amazon. Uh, in the book, I talk about some very stupid thing I had an experience with with, with Stan. Uh, I remember having lunch with him once. And I vividly remember the place where we had lunch. It was a very kind of healthy California vegetable kind of place, you know. Uh, nothing, nothing bad for you. Nothing that tasted good. You know, it was one of those kinds of places. So at some point in the conversation, and this is before X Men became a big movie or TV show. It was an animated TV show as well. This is before X Men was any of those properties. It was just a comic book. Uh, and I remember having lunch with Stan, and towards the end of the lunch, he said to me, you know, Sandy, I got this property. It's called the X-Men. I think it could make a really good movie, or I think it could be a TV show. You know, if you want to pursue it or push it, you know, you could, you could be a producer on the thing. And, you know, I think we could push this into a, a really cool property. So I said, okay, Stan, let me think about it, about this X-Men thing. And uh, I had read X-Men when, when I was a kid, so I knew what it was about. So I said, oh, let me think about it and get back to you, Stan. Now, what happened was I totally forgot about it. I, didn't, I never got back to him about developing the X-Men and becoming a producer on the show, never. Mm. And I just totally mm. forgot about it. And uh, so I lost an opportunity to do the X-Men. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Now, another thing is I'm telling the story that I realize the stupid of me is I said, let me get back to you on that, Stan. I should never say, let me get back to you to Stan Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Stan Lee says, right. would you like to do something? The correct answer is, thank you, Stan, that would be great. The answer is not, let me get back to you. And the other answer, the other thing is, you don't forget about it and not call him back. Right. But I, ne I never called him back. Luckily, yeah, he's a very, very nice guy. He never, he didn't get picked at me. Uh, he was, he was okay. And, oh yeah, by the way, the X-Men went on to become successful very beautifully without me. <laughs> I will say, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think they've done just fine without me. <laughs> that's a yeah, that's I, a good I, one. Yeah, I made loads of mistakes in my life. That's one of the bigger ones, and uh, yeah, it, it kind of doesn't bother me too much because 
you know, the fact that I could say, let me get back to you, Stan, just to have, to have that ability in your life, just to be able to say to Stanley, let me think and get back to you, Stan. To be in that position in and of itself is kind of a winning situation. The fact that I let the X-Men slip through my hands, hey, you know, hey, was it stupid? Absolutely. Now, uh, let me let me ask you this. So, yeah, so, you've, seen, so you've seen the X-Men. Uh, is there anything that you would have changed about it uh, if you uh, uh, had produced it? You know, I got to tell you, the X-Men was never my favorite Marvel property. Uh, you know, they call these things properties. Uh, why was the X-Men not? I, you know, I think for my sensibilities, there were too many characters and too much going on in each story for the X-Men. You know, this one had to do this, the other one had to do that. This one was flying around. There was one guy with wings. There was another guy who, I think his name is Angel. There was another guy who had yeah, some kind of... I would agree with that, yeah. You know, there were so many darn characters in every story, and then there was the bald guy, the, the doctor or leader, whatever the heck, Professor X, I think his name is. Patrick Stewart plays him now, or has played him. But anyway, my problem with X-Men is there's too many characters in every story. I don't like that. I like Spider-Man because it's one hero in a story who you can focus on, get some depth on, get some sympathy for. That's a better way of doing a property for my sensibility. Spider-Man, wonderful, terrific, love it. Uh, X-Men, too much going on, too little depth you could get into, so much going on that you diffuse the energy of working with a Spider-Man one-character property. So what would I do with the X-Men? <sighs> Boy, I would have gotten rid of some of the lesser characters. That's number one. What else would I have done? Let me think. I've never thought of this before. I would have said yes to Stanley instead of let me get back to you. That would have been a change. What else would I have done with the X-Men? None of the characters, I hate to say this, but none of the X-Men characters really were that interesting or intriguing to me. You know, Spider-Man was, I liked Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was cool. I liked the Fantastic Four. There were only four of them, and they were interesting. Uh, but you know, the ones with too many, the, the groups with so many characters, I, I couldn't, I couldn't connect with them. I couldn't empathize with them much. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, and, and looking at people's attention span these days, that's just way, way too much for a person's attention span to keep, keep track of as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I was writing Spider-Man, I read Spider-Man as a kid and, you know, saved the comic books and everything. Spider-Man, you couldn't connect with uh by the time it became an animated tv show there were so many characters that i had to refresh my memory on it was like you know mary jane this and gwen stacy says that and this one is that and this is aunt may dying or not dying you know there was all kinds of characters and now there's a lot of different types of spider-man so it's it's when i had to write for it i had to just refresh my memory on all, all the characters and all that so, uh, Sandy, we had uh, so we've talked on your uh, uh, your incredible successes. I mean, getting to have lunch and be in Barbera's office and writing for Roddenberry. What are some of the uh, struggles that you've had to go through to get to these places? Uh, okay, well, 
every human being has to go through struggles, unfortunately. There's no way to escape that. Uh, I've had several. You know, one is the fact that my parents were divorced. And, you know, I'm not going to mention names or anything, but one of them used me as a sort of uh, device to get at the other one. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the middle of that, and that that was really bad because that creates trust issues and abandonment issues, and you would think that could be uh, gotten over easily in a year or two or whatever, but I still have dreams about that kind of stuff, nightmares, that kind of thing. Uh, so the divorce, it was a bad, messy divorce, and I was a kid who was sometimes used as a pawn. Uh, that was a bad thing that to this day resonates and works in my subconscious uh, to the point that I have nightmares about it still. Uh, how did I get over it? You know, I don't think I've totally gotten over it, frankly. The, and the fact that I still dream about it indicates that. Other things, boy, let me think about what I want to get into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that I know that this is kind of a a loaded question, a heavy kind of question. No, no, that's okay. I'm I'm okay with getting into heavy stuff because my life and nobody's life is all positive. You go through negatives, I believe, to see if you can learn something from the negatives and to see if you have the strength to keep pushing through. Uh, about a year ago, I got divorced, and that was really terrible, tough difficult situation uh you know boy getting divorced uh and now that i'm thinking about it the first thing i talked about was my parents divorce and that was tough then i'm talking about my divorce and that was tough uh you know there seems to be a connecting theme going on here but Mm -hmm. divorce was tough uh stuff like you know there was issues over the dog because my wife my ex-wife and I have a a terrific dog but luckily my ex-wife and I worked it out really you know it was difficult it was tough it was heartbreaking it was sad Uh, luckily my ex-wife and I dealt with it intelligently and thoughtfully so it was a lot better than the horrible messy divorce my uh, my mom and dad had. So at least I guess I learned from that first thing and did a lot better this way. And my wife, my ex-wife and I uh, now, you know, we're dealing really well and nicely and thoughtfully with, with each other. So, you know, the divorce was horrible, but you deal with it in the best way you can. Uh, I remember another big obstacle. When I very first started writing, I remember vividly being in a supermarket and looking at a coffee cup that was made of plastic and cost four dollars. It was like a coffee cup, brown plastic coffee cup, four dollars. And I remember looking at it and saying to myself, I need a coffee cup, but can I afford the four dollars? So there was a time in my life where I was where I was definitely poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so divorce, another divorce, lack of money. I'm great now with money, but back then, 
at the beginning of my career, I was not. Uh, and you just get through them. Uh, you just plug through them. Let me think if there's anything else I want to get into. Uh, yeah, there are a few others, but I, I kind of don't want to get into them. But the bottom line is, you know, I tell my students and I'll tell whoever cares that's listening, if you've got difficulties, if you've got struggles, welcome to being a human being. <laughs> and and that's what Spider-Man is about. You know, Spider-Man is about a character who has self-doubt. He's kind of awkward. He's, you know, Peter Parker is not the the perfect person by any means. And he gets through life by being heroic and tenacious and he keeps going, even though his Aunt May was sick or when Stacy is pissed at him or mm-hmm. Mary Jane hates his guts for some reason this week, he keeps going. And the genius that Stan had in creating or co-creating a Spider-Man character, I think he co-created it with Steve Ditko, the artist, uh, was Spider-Man was a normal, average person in the Peter Parker side of things you know, without the powers, the spider powers. And people relate to that. People sympathize with that. People empathize with that. People care about that. Uh, you know, that's a great character because that's what life is really about. Uh, minus the web slinging stuff. And as Superman, I think, is just a lousy character. Uh, I don't like Superman. I don't empathize with him. And again, I don't like him. Why? He's much, much better looking than I am. <laughs> he could beat the daylights out of me very easily. <laughs> He's invulnerable to everything. And again, the guy's perfect. Now, can kryptonite get him? Yes, but not really. He always figures a way to get out of the kryptonite problem. So I, I don't like anybody who's perfect. Uh I don't think anybody likes people who are perfect or appear to be perfect. Absolutely, yeah. You know, Gene Roddenberry once told me a story, a true story. He said, you know, Sandy, I was uh, on Sunset, and my Rolls Royce smashed into another Rolls Royce. He had a big, impressive Rolls Royce, and he smashed into another Rolls Royce, you know, in a traffic accident. Nobody was hurt, but as people passed him, uh, and they saw these two Rolls Royces smashed together. Nobody was hurt. It was, you know, it wasn't that severe. People would laugh and applaud at the two Rolls Royces smashed together. The reason for that is nobody likes anybody who's perfect or appears to be perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, if I saw two Rolls Royces kind of jammed together, i go, oh, you know, maybe that's good. <laughs> as, long as, as long as nobody was hurt. i got to yeah. make that clear. Uh, he, he thought it was funny and I think it's funny, you know, to see these two great, big, huge, expensive vehicles messed up, you know, that's really what life is. You know, even if you have a Rolls Royce, you get messed up. Even if you're Sam Simon, you get cancer, you know, it's, it's this horrific, horrible things in life. You got to deal with them. Uh, now, uh, speaking of uh, Roddenberry, do you go to the Star Trek conventions? 
I have gone to Star Trek conventions a lot as a guest. Uh, there was one where I even spoke huge audience just before Bill Shatner spoke. So yeah, I've gone to a lot of Star Trek conventions. I haven't in the past few years. Uh, you know, for some reason, I kind of lost interest in him, but I, you know, maybe I should go again because they were always fun. It's always nice to have people ask for your autograph and tell you how wonderful you are. You know, that's, that's, I, I can always cope with people telling me how cool I am and blah, blah, blah. Cause unfortunately my ego still needs that. <laughs> and, and, and that's, there's, there's an obstacle. I shouldn't need to be asked for autographs and I shouldn't care if somebody says, Oh, we really love this thing. You're and that thing. Oh, it's, oh, blah, 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 blah. I shouldn't at this point in my life, but I, I do. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't gone to conventions much. I went to one about two years ago. Uh, it's, you know, they're cool. They're fascinating. The people are really nice. Some of the artists are very cool. Uh, but I haven't in a few years, and I probably should try a few more because they're usually interesting and fun. And seeing all, all those people dress up as the characters. It's cool. I like yeah. it. I think it's great. You know, any anybody who's passionate about something or into something, I'm a fan of that because a huge amount of humanity is passionate about nothing. Uh, some philosopher, I believe, said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. That's really sad and probably accurate. If you're enthusiastic about a property like Star Trek and you get dressed up and you love it and it's fun and you're passionate about it, terrific. That's beautiful. No one, no one has dressed up like Sandy Freeze, have they? Nobody would want to. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm well. I'm okay looking, but, but I'm not. I'm not worth the costume or character. Okay. I, yeah, but now you know, which is fine. They wanted me. This is interesting. They wanted me on Next Generation to once. This is another thing I should have locked onto, but did not. They wanted me once to play you know, just a, a quick character, not an ongoing character uh, on Next Generation, like a professor kind of character. And, you know, like I didn't, I didn't latch onto it. I didn't make it happen. They just let it go. Uh, and it's funny because now I am a professor. Absolutely. And, and that's something else I wanted to, to touch on with you. Um, uh, what, what is the, so what is your, your class like? Uh, what, what do you teach your, your students? Uh, I teach a couple of things. I teach uh, film, and I teach writing, uh, and those are my two favorite classes, film and writing. You know, the writing classes, I have some students who are phenomenal writers. I have some students who are not by any stretch of the imagination, but the good news is I have never, ever, ever in my life seen a person with real talent as a writer and tenacity, I've never, ever seen that person fail, never. And you have talent, you have tenacity, there's room for you. And again, that's why writers get paid well, because they're rare, if they're good. Now there's loads and loads and thousands of people who think they're good writers, but are lousy. You know, I mentioned in my book, if your mommy tells you you're a good writer, that doesn't count. Yeah. If your Aunt Edna tells you you're a good writer, no, that doesn't count either. If you've got a college professor who you have 
respect for and knows what he or she is talking about, you're a good writer, okay, that counts. If a producer at Universal says you're a good writer, that counts. But there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who unfortunately think they're talented and are not. And talent is to a certain degree subjective, but I have never seen a talented writer who's tenacious. Uh, and uh, speaking of good writing real quick, and I'm, I'm going to make this, this correlation here. Some of the best writing that I've ever seen for a TV show is I Love Lucy. And Lucia Ball is pretty much kind of responsible for, for Star Trek, her company. Yeah, actually, that's interesting. Uh, Lucille Ball had a company called Desi Lu, which was a mixture of uh, Desi Arnaz and Lucy. Desi Arnaz was her husband, and Desi ran the studio. Uh, my office on the Star Trek lot was there's a big globe uh, that you, they used to have at the corners of the lot, or at least one of the corners. So it was right near that, and it was right near where Desi Lu used to be. But anyway, Desi Liu uh, produced the original Star Trek. A lot of people don't know that. I believe they also did Mission Impossible. Andy uh, Griffith, I think, was another one of their shows that they did as well. Say it again? I, I, so I think uh, Andy Griffith show was also another one of their shows that they made as well. Yeah, that I'm not sure of. But, you know, oh, okay. I, I, I'm pretty sure I, they may have. I, I don't know. But I'm, I, I know they did uh, – I know for sure they did uh, Star Trek – pretty sure they did Mission Impossible. Uh, but Desi Lu was a pretty cool company. Uh, if I remember correctly from a book I read, uh, Desi Arnaz, Lucy's husband, was the guy who thought up the three-camera shoot, which is where you shoot a sitcom or whatever with three cameras. Before that, it used to be one camera. Uh, and he was, from what I've read, I, you know, I'm not so old that I, I knew him or his wife by any means. Uh, Desi was supposedly a really clever and inventive and very effective uh, business person at Desi Lu. And a lot of people don't know it, but yeah, Desi Lu, Lucy and her husband's company was responsible for a lot of TV shows. They shot it on the Paramount lot and Desi Lu was on the Paramount lot. Uh, but, you know, it's just, it's amazing that I walked around on that lot and had an office on that lot. You know, I'm still amazed at my luck and a lot of the things I've done in my life. I've actually, so Sandy, I've actually got to do um, <clears throat> some production work, uh, like be a PA for a couple of things at uh, at Paramount. And I think I've I've been on some of the parts where they've shot Star Trek. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right next door, uh, and uh, so correct me if, if I'm wrong, I'm sure I probably am, but uh, right next door to, to Dr. Phil is, is one of the places where, where I worked at. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not sure what the original Star Trek... Oh, actually, there is one set or one uh, studio. I think it's called Studio 16. It's called the Planet Set. On Next Generation, they would build the planets if it was a different planet one week. They build the planets on it, and I believe that they used that same set for the original uh, Star Trek as well as Next Generation. It's 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 uh, stage. I'm pretty sure it's stage 16, uh, very big stage, and you know the sort of the cheesy sets that you saw in the original Star Trek used to be built on that on that sound stage. 
and they did the better Sith on Next Generation on that too. The, the, the original Star Trek was not uh, something which had a huge budget. It was, it was done relatively inexpensively. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, Sandy, I just want to thank you so much for coming on my show. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. You did a super job of asking good questions. I, I really, really appreciate your asking me, and I'm delighted that I was able to talk with you. Absolutely. Same here. And please do. Please come back sometime. Absolutely. And I'm going to do one more plug for my book, Secrets Your Textbook Will Not Tell You, on Amazon. It's maybe the best thing I've ever written in my life. Probably is for a bunch of reasons. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for putting up with my numerous plugs. And <laughs> no worries. Thank you for your time. And I thank you for the great questions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you are a, a, a wealth of knowledge and a, a very, very nice man, sir. And uh, like I said, please do come back sometime. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to do that anytime. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.